Welcome to International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. Join us every single week for Marxist news, theory, and analysis. Hello and welcome to International Marxist Radio. This month marks 70 years since the death of Joseph Stalin in 1953. Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union, and he's a man that is synonymous in the minds of many with the horrors and crimes of communism, of Marxism, of Leninism. But in actual fact, Stalin was not the inheritor of Marxism. He was actually its usurper, and the crimes that he committed were not only against his political enemies, but the world revolution as a whole. The Stalinist regime in Russia completely perverted the revolution in Russia and created a deformed, bureaucratic, and dictatorial parody of a socialist regime. And today, it's the duty of genuine Marxists to explain the difference and demonstrate the difference between real Marxism, real Leninism, and Stalinism. And we in the International Marxist Tendency highlight the contributions of Leon Trotsky in keeping the legacy of genuine Marxism alive, maintaining its clean banner. Before we get into the discussion, I want to also highlight a very important text that's available to buy from well-read books. I'll put a link in the description. And this is Trotsky's biography of Stalin. It's unfinished. It's Trotsky's last great work. He was murdered by GPU agents in 1940 before he was able to complete it. But it's a really masterful text. It's Trotsky probably at his most advanced, his most mature. And it's a really excellent demonstration of the relationship between the individual and historical processes. It deals with the background of Stalin's development as an individual and also how he was involved in the events that ultimately led to the degeneration of the Russian Revolution. And the version available in Wellread is particularly special. It's a brand new, if you like, remastered edition with about 20% more material than the previous version, uh, distortions of its original translator removed, um, and... It contains lots of material from Trotsky that wasn't in any previous edition. But anyway, the purpose of this discussion is to delve into how Stalin's actions didn't happen in isolation, but they actually reflected the degeneration of the Russian Revolution, which was part of a wider process. And for that purpose, we've got Nicholas Albin Svensson, who is a leading member of the International Marxist Tendency, here to talk to us about Stalin, Stalinism, and the legacy of both today. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, first of all, I think that with historical figures like Stalin, it's difficult to see the real person behind the popular perception. So, what kind of a character, what kind of a personality was Stalin? Well, I think he's, he's described by 
people who knew him. There's obviously many people who got to know him over the period, but there's one particular person who was a Georgian Menshevik later on in life, um, but who knew uh, Stalin in his youth. And um, he he describes this person, this young person who was uh, very ruthlessly ambitious, mercilessly ambitious, well, what he said was that Stalin, he only ever saw the negative in people. He only saw the um, the base, the the mean side of people, and he was became very adept at manipulating these uh, aspects of people's personalities, uh, their petty grievances, and these kind of things. And um, he uh, couldn't see the sort of idealistic, and he had very great mistrust in the idealistic. Uh, uh, desires and uh, uh, attributes and wishes of people, and this uh, form this is forms a very pretty bad combination in the revolutionary. Um, he also later on is described by many of the leading Bolsheviks as being very vindictive, as if he was slighted in some way by someone. He then has a tendency to carry a grudge for a very long time. Uh, and it's obviously something, again, which is not very conduitive to revolutionary work. In general, this kind of personality, uh, this kind of personality ha- becomes quite a conservative approach because you don't really trust people to act on, uh, you know, on, on the basis of revolutionary ideas or Marxism and trying to, you know, uh, find better themselves or better case of humanity because you don't mm. really believe uh, in the masses, you don't believe in the workers, you don't believe in their ability to struggle and shape, fundamentally alter society. Uh, so this quite cynical approach actually uh, becomes very conservative. And instead, you have a tendency, and I think this was very much the case with Stalin, a tendency to over-rely on the apparatus, the uh, rules, the functions, the uh, and also uh, behind-the-scenes manipulations rather than public and open discussion and debate about uh, ideas and the way forward for the revolutionary movement. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading in the Stalin biography about the young uh, Koba, as he was known, um, first amongst friends and then in revolutionary circles, born Joseph Jugshvili, a poor Georgian uh, from the Caucasus, son of an alcoholic cobbler. And it talks about how he acquired a kind of one-sided class hatred by watching these minor aristocrats riding into town and harassing the poor peasants and lower middle-class artisans. And it talks about how he became kind of inculcated with a kind of class loathing. But on the other side, he was never particularly inspired by a desire to liberate the working class of the downtrodden. He was just driven, as you say, by the negative um, side of humanity by this kind of resentment, the chip on his shoulder, if you like. And in relation to this point you had about people slighting him, there's another interesting episode where Stalin, for many years, um, because he was an old Bolshevik, I think we should give the devil his due, he was at one point something like an earnest revolutionary, and he desperately wanted to be on a leading body. He really wanted to be on the Central Committee. And there's a really interesting anecdote where Zinoviev, uh, who later actually formed a, a block with Stalin against Trotsky, of course, but uh, this was this was well before that. Young guy, younger than Stalin, 
he attended a central committee meeting and made this absolutely amazing barnstorming speech that just wrapped everybody's attention. He got a standing ovation and he was immediately um, co-opted onto the central committee. And Trotsky said um, he knew at that moment that Stalin would never forget and never forgive being upstaged. And indeed, um, a few decades later, Zinoviev found himself on the receiving end of Stalin's purchase and was executed. Um, I, I think that the kind of personality that produces a Stalin comes across very powerfully in the book. Uh, and it is very much as you describe. But obviously, we're not just talking about Stalin as an individual. And this is sometimes a criticism that's leveled against Trotskyists. Um, oh, you, you, you keep banging on about Stalin the man, but uh, history is more complicated than that. Well, of course, we agree. And when we say Stalinism, it, we're not just talking about Stalin as an individual. Um, Stalinism is a political phenomenon with particular characteristics that arises out of particular circumstances. So what would you say is our definition or understanding of Stalinism as a political phenomenon? Well, I think the uh, Stalin's life itself is quite ins instructive in understanding a little bit where how the personality and the um, polit politics come together. So for and this conservative outlook, which is very, very uh, typical of Stalin and also very empiricist, he doesn't really take much interest in political ideas. He doesn't really think they're that important. Um, and you can see that throughout his life. Uh, his, very, his production, theoretical contribution was very small. Um, and what he did produce tended to be written to a large extent by other people, like, for example, his work on the national question. But, for example, then, when in Lenin, in the early 1910s, there was a big battle that erupted inside the Russian social democracy. At this time, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks were partially in the same organization. And there was a big battle to open up on the question of whether or not they should abolish the illegal organization and m merely have a legal organization. Call this, uh, and Lenin was attacking the people who wanted to abol abolish the underground organization, mm. calling them liquidationists. And at that time, Stalin found himself in St. Petersburg being the editor, or at least on the editorial team, of Pravda, which was the main leading Bolshevik paper in the capital. And this, uh, and he, he uh, took the opposite view, and he actually, he didn't want to engage in the struggle. In fact, he wrote a letter calling it a storm in a teacup. Mm. Um, but Lenin, obviously, what, what was behind this whole struggle about having an underground organization or not, was effectively that these Mensheviks, by and large, wanted to adapt themselves to the existing laws and existing uh, setup in the Tsarist uh, dictatorship. So they were basically willing to abandon the cause for the republic and the struggle for the republic and so on, abandon the struggle for revolution uh, in order then to be able to find an accommodation effectively with the Tsarist regime. And so this would have been liquidated the Revolutionary Party, hence liquidationism, and Lenin was adamantly opposed. But Stalin took no interest in this theoretical debate. Uh, he didn't think it was important. Uh, and call it a storm in a teacup. And this is really uh, kind of demonstrates, I think, the sort of logic of this personality and then becomes very, very important politically. And uh, he had to be removed as editor of Pravda, Lenin, and uh, made sure he was removed and replaced by another 
prominent Bolshevik called Sverdlov. Uh, and Sverdlov uh, was on Lenin's line in this question, and they conducted a very important, successful struggle against liquidationism. But Stalin at this time found himself completely at odds because he didn't understand the question and didn't think it was important. Another time was in 1917, when the uh, when he finds himself returning from Siberia in exile, in the revolution. This is February, March, uh, and he finds himself uh, again at the head of the Petersburg organization in the middle of the February Revolution, and he cannot adapt in the in the circumstances. He immediately adopts quite conservative stance, abandons the previous position of the Bolsheviks, which was to oppose any kind of collaboration with the liberals and the bourgeoisie, and instead, uh, along with uh, other leading Bolsheviks, it wasn't the only one who took this line, but he uh, post says that we have to have a critical support to this new uh, provisional gov- uh, government, which was led by Prince Lvov. Uh, and when Lenin then uh, is outraged and he tries to change the line, he writes letters to the leading Bolshevik, he writes articles he wants to be published in uh, in the leading p- uh, paper of the Bolsheviks, uh, then Stalin blocks him and refuses to publish these letters among with some of the others. And only then when Lenin returns and when he managed to win the majority in the party, Ch- Stalin changes his line. And so in the in the political sense, he actually leaned much more closer to the Mensheviks or mm. Lenin's opponents than he did towards the Bolsheviks. We should be clear, in case anyone listening isn't aware, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks were different factions of the old Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. So the Marxist party in Russia um, at the, the turn of the 20th century, and they split in 1903 over some trivial matter um, on the surface of it, but really what it reflected was a division between the truly revolutionary side of the party and the more reformist side of the party. And what you're saying is that Stalin, in his heart of hearts, always leaned more towards the reformist wing. I, I think politically, yes. I think in other sense, he was more organizationally had more of an affinity to the Bolsheviks in the sense of their emphasis for a, a structured, disciplined organization. I think there he found himself more at home with the Bolsheviks, but in the in the, in the political sense, and then it, this repeats then towards the insurrection uh, in sept- uh, August, September, when he makes he's basically once again uh, he's again the editor of uh, not the Pravda now has changed his name but he's again refusing to publish Lenin's articles uh, on the grounds that he basically thinks that the insurrection is premature Mm. Uh, he thinks that it's not the time is not ready to take power yet and so on and he shares that opinion with Zinoviev and Kamenev Um, so again this conservative outlook comes out and so his, his general personality and when we talk about Stalinism, then to return to the original question, talk about Stalinism as a political phenomena. It really does uh, share these kind of characteristics mm. uh, of being quite conservative, overly focused on the apparatus, organizational side of things, um, and it's constant mistrust of mistrust of the masses. You don't trust the masses to actually be able to change society, and I think that's. Uh, very important. And it approaches constantly has a tendency to approach the reformist wing of the labor movement uh, politically uh, and adapt to them and 
occasionally has happened, you know, if you think about the 1990s and so on, where many of the communist parties effectively dissolved themselves into uh, the reformist wings of the labor movement. Mm. And that explains why we talk about Stalinism in trade unions in Britain, Stalinist methods by political parties outside of Russia. We talk about Maoism, for example, being a kind of flavor of Stalinism and sharing some of its traits. Um, And I think that a lot of people, and certainly this is the propaganda line that's fed to the masses in the West, would have the idea that Stalinism, the Stalinist regime with the gulags and the mass murders and the famines and so on, was just the inevitable and natural product of Marxist ideas and Lenin's methods of revolutionary organization. But is that true? Uh, no, I, th- I think certainly it wasn't. And I think the, the, it's, it's, it's quite clear that if you study the history of uh, Stalin's personal history and the history of Bolshevism, that actually uh, the idea that Stalin represented was something quite different to those that Lenin represented. Um, even if Stalin did play a role in, uh, as, as a functionary in the party apparatus for, for a long time, uh, all throughout the, ever since the 1904 or three or something like that, but he he did not um, uh, he did not play a prominent political role because effectively he he didn't have any affinity whatsoever to the ideas that Lenin put forward. And then you obviously have once Lenin is dead, you then have the struggle that opens up, and effectively Stalin, in order to um, in order to take control of the party, he has to then purge the party off uh, all the leading Bolsheviks. And a lot of the people that replaced them in the state apparatus, as well as in the leadership of the party, are former Mensheviks, who are then get them rehabilitated. Uh, and their outlook, in a lot of ways, suited the new Soviet regime a lot better than many of the revolutionaries that had uh, overthrown uh, the Russian Tsarism and overthrown capitalism in Russia. So I don't think they're uh, the same at all. Trotsky and Lenin, they... The people who come to life in revolutionary movements and they write, they understand uh, these movements, they they feel uh, they, 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 it is what brings them life and what brings life to their ideas. But Stalin, on the contrary, and Trotsky makes this point in, in the biography he mentioned, uh, Stalin in all these moments, he actually kind of disappears from history, he disappears mm. from the record. He is present here and there and so on, and you can find traces of him, but he's not really, uh, he doesn't play any leading role at all. Uh, you find Trotsky, he finds himself at the head of the St. Petersburg Soviet twice, uh, both in uh, 1905 and then in September uh, 1917. Lenin, obviously, uh, as the... Uh, not unchallenged, but as the uh, very prominent leader of the Bolshevik party and certainly its ideological uh, leader uh, who who constantly have to uh, rearm the party with a new new guiding principles for the new whenever there's a turn in the political situation. He's the one who is able to do that. Um, You don't find that at all with uh, someone like Stalin. There's a really good anecdote in the book where Trotsky talks about the leading Bolsheviks all being hoarse 
I think he's actually talking about uh, the February Revolution and the lead up to October. They're hoarse from giving so many public speeches. Of course, this is before amplification, so you really have to use your outside voice. You really have to use the diaphragm to get people to hear you at the back. And they were all running around giving these these speeches to rally the masses and to agitate amongst the ranks of the Soviets. And he says that Stalin alone kept his voice, though no one really listened, <laughs> which I think is, uh, again, it, it's not something that we're saying uh, in a petty way or as a matter of historical slander. You can see it it's in the record. He's not mentioned. I mean, the party by 1917 was known as the party of Lenin Trotsky. It was clear that Lenin and Trotsky were seen as the figureheads of the Bolsheviks. Stalin doesn't get a look in. No, you can find you find posters, for example, who have the popular posters, which were published by the Communist Party, and you find that they have, you know, sometimes Lenin and Trotsky are the most preeminent Bolsheviks after 1917. Obviously, Trotsky didn't join the Bolsheviks until 1917, but mm-hmm. after 1917, they are known as the most prominent Bolsheviks and as the most prominent leaders uh, of the revolution. And obviously as leaders of working class, because Trotsky, even if he wasn't uh, a Bolshevik, he had a long history uh, in the revolutionary movement. Mm. These posters, you look at them, and sometimes there's 10 leading Bolsheviks, sometimes there's 12, and Stalin just isn't one of them because he didn't play this role, uh, certainly not in public. Mm. But it begs the question then, if Stalin really was this non-entity, and if what he represented really was the backside of the revolution rather than its face... How did someone like him end up at the head of the regime? Um, what resulted in Stalin ascending to power? Yeah, well, I think the thing is, so you have after the revolution, you you abolish capitalism, but uh, that's that's not you can't just sort of pass a decree and then say, well, capitalism is now gone, everything is fine. That's not how it works. Society history does not move in such simple simple ways. But after the civil war was over and they needed to reconstruct society, uh, reconstruct Russian society, they didn't have the resources, the industries were devastated after first the First World War and then the Civil War. Mm. The uh, agriculture was in tatters and they needed to uh, reconstitute, uh, you know, the economy, basically, to revive the economy. And they did that by making certain concessions to capitalism. And this was under the new economic policy, right? That's the right. NEP, which was basically the limited reintroduction of capitalism to Russia. And this was something that um, uh, everyone, well, you say not everyone supported, but there was widespread support for this because it was necessary to do. Because right. they needed to do it. There had not been a revolution in the West and they needed uh, to basically recover uh to recover the economy, start a bit of growth, uh, rebuild the industries. And they maintain a large trade sector, uh, but they was allowed to form uh, capitalist enterprises in various ways. But this uh, then, uh, and particularly in agriculture, and so open up this potential to trade, for example, grain in the private market, this kind of thing. But obviously what happens in the capitalism, we are all aware, well aware, what happens on the capitalism is a massive increase of inequality. Right. That's what always happens. And here was capitalism developing very rapidly and inequality started growing very rapidly. And the kulaks, which emerged as a class, the richer peasants, capitalists, mm. farmers, you can call them, um, they emerged as a serious force to threaten. And they were also back then in the cities to a lesser degree, but nonetheless by emerging bourgeois class 
But this also strengthened the uh, state bureaucracy, which was eating up an increasing part of the uh, of the surplus or the the wealth that was generate created in the society. How Stalin comes to power in this circumstance, he has been battling with um, Trotsky, uh, and he was originally in a block with Sinoviev and Kamenev, who, for their own personal reasons, nothing political really, but their own personal prestige reasons. Had, sat, uh, had decided to side with Stalin against Trotsky. And because they didn't really, because he wasn't very much of a prominent character, they weren't really very concerned about him. They, did, mm. they weren't worried about him and so on. They, they thought he was an insignificant figure. Uh, Lenin and Trotsky, uh, Lenin towards the end of his life and Trotsky as well, uh, around this time, understood that there was something far more dangerous behind Stalin. Mm. Not the man himself, who was not particularly interesting individual but what lies behind him and obviously what this bureaucracy was growing they found and also the bourgeois to some extent they found in stalin a character who was willing to basically become their tool mm. and so all his personality traits his conservatism his kind of meanness his uh tendency to see the negative in people his tendency to maneuver also manipulate people um like he had co he collected like individuals who had grievances against the bolshevik party and collected them um and leadership of the bolshevik party he kind of collected them and formed personal relationships with them kind of fostering these grievances to try to uh, f uh on a personal basis kind of form uh, a network and a relationship and he used all that against the uh, leadership of Bolshevik party and on this basis the state bureaucracy is now becoming a very powerful force in Russian society they could use him in the struggle against the revolution and obviously his his uh, lack of interest in the world revolution which he certainly he always had um, uh, it was then something very suitable to the bureaucracy who didn't want further revolution. They wanted calm, they wanted peace, they wanted quiet. They wanted, they wanted to consolidate the gains. They wanted to consolidate the gains they'd made. Yes. They wanted to and they didn't I mean the bureaucracy does not have like a kind of revolutionary outlook. They're not a class in society, they have no role to play in in you know, in the grand scheme of development of humanity. They're a very conservative outlook. And they found in this individual, Stalin, a very useful tool. And that's really how then this happens. I guess the other point is the bureaucracy, because it was purely parasitical, it played no justifiable role in the course of events. It was just a privileged layer at the top of the revolution. Its ultimate descent into physical repression um, against not just its direct political opponents, but the, the cream of the working class as a whole... Uh, reflected that fact. It couldn't justify itself politically. It couldn't, you know, democratically and ideologically justify its existence. So in the end, it had to utilize repression. So that explains part of the murderous character that the Stalinist bureaucracy acquired. That's right. I mean, the the whole thing. So by by nineteen twenty seven, I think it is. The uh, you then have the opposition, and you have the united opposition with where. First, you have the left opposition, which was just Trotsky and supporters of Trotsky. Then you have the united opposition, where Zinoviev and Kamenev join with Trotsky. And they write a platform where they precisely warn about the impending dangers of the restoration of capitalism. Right. Because of the, uh, pro the inequalities that were built in the NEP, the increase of the working day, the misery that was... Uh, uh, 
the, the living conditions that were worsening for workers and how this feared the restoration and counter-revolution. This was uh, poo-pooed or, you know, ignored by, uh, ridiculed by Stalin, Bukharin. And uh, so Stalin at the time was in a block with Bukharin and uh, Rykov and Tomsky, who belonged to the right of the Bolshevik party. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, uh, Bukharin famously say, told the Kulaks to get rich. Mm. And that was the kind of attitude I had. They, they, and then only one or two years later, there's then this a shift where these, um, uh, <laughs> where the, the there was a strike. Uh, the Kulaks refused to deliver grain to the cities. There was uh, a increased um, the bourgeois in the cities. They were also refusing to. They were starting basically to blockade the economy. Right. And you have it, and the crisis provoked. And then in this situation, Stalin has to turn 180 degrees. Um, and so, but the bureaucracy in this place, you can see them. They're, they're leaning on to the right in the whole net period, but then they have to turn 180 degrees because. Obviously, at this point in time, you there was a real threat of capitalist restoration. Mm. In 1929, you then have them taking an absolute ultra-left turn. Mm. So, and they actually adopt much of the United Opposition or Left Opposition's program of um, uh, the beginnings of collectivization of agriculture. Left Opposition were arguing for a promotion of left, agri- uh, left of collectivization of agriculture. Stalin. Uh, puts in a forced collectivization, which is an absolute disaster. Yeah, I've, I've read one description of that forced collectivization where they say they collectivize down to the shoes of little children, which they dragged off their feet. And so it's agriculture never recovered from the forced collectivization. Um, it was an absolute disastrous policy, but, but it also reflects the bureaucracy inability to understand human beings and politics and the economy. And they just uh, think that you can just command things. Uh, uh, and if you command something, it will appear, right? But human being, they do not have no understanding for the class struggle. And so uh, they implemented this, the Trotsky's program in this sort of uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, caricature, basically, of the mm. program of the left opposition. Nonetheless, the planned economy had tremendous successes, and the, the on the industrial, if the agriculture, the on the industrial side of it, they did. The following ten years were very successful in the Soviet mm. Union, in spite of all the mistakes the bureaucracy made. Right. There's a few things that I want to pick up on and highlight. First of all, I think it's really important and interesting to note that Kamenev and Zinoviev, who first of all, as you say, for their own unprincipled, prestige-driven reasons, tried to form a block with Stalin, but obviously, having realised what they'd unleashed, they tried to put things back in the box and join with the left opposition in order to try and prevent this danger of the, re- of, of, of the revolution being totally destroyed and capitalism being restored. But then, of course, they eventually capitulated again and went back to Stalin, only to be executed in the purges in the 1930s. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight is the importance of the failure of the world revolution, because this really is the factor that Trotsky attributes um, to the defeats of the opposition and the victory of the Stalinists, because following the defeat of the Chinese Revolution in uh, 1926-27, which was directly facilitated by the terrible advice that Stalin gave, actually personally gave, for the communists in 
China to form a bloc with the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek, the Nationalist Party, who proceeded to slaughter them. The failure of the German Revolution. The failure of the World Revolution gave a big impetus to the consolidation of the bureaucracy's control because it basically sapped the um, the confidence and the enthusiasm of an already depleted and exhausted working class and gave strength to the arguments of the bureaucrats. You know, the working class in Russia, they fought heroically, well... First, they had to deal with the First World War, where they obviously right. conscripted well, or those who weren't conscripted into the army were fighting in the well, were uh, conscripted into the arms industry, and uh, it was very long, terrible working hours, bad working conditions. Then you have the revolution, which in the sense is a great, you know, energizer of all people, and uh, it's like a, and they managed tremendous things uh, after the 1917 and the struggle in the Civil War when they were invaded by 21 imperialist armies, everything from the United States to Japan to France to Britain, everyone got involved in the, uh, in the Civil War in, in Russia. And obviously this was a tremendous effort and all this energy, which would never have been possible without the revolution. But, it, but in this struggle, which was a revolutionary struggle against the whites and against imperialism is and then again after then to try to rebuild the economy again obviously this required a tremendous amount of effort long working hours and so on and so the working class by the late 20s and then, then you add what you described effectively the demoralization that the west workers of the west they failed in their revolutions mm. and couldn't come to the assistance of the uh, the russian workers and then you have the Chinese workers who also have failed. And there you can see again, there in particular, you have one of the clearest examples of this conservative outlook of mm. the leading layers in the, the new leadership of the uh, uh, Communist Party in Russia, who are giving very conservative, uh, narrow uh, advice to the um, narrow-minded advice to the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party and lead that struggle into defeat. Uh, and that, I think, Trotsky said about that. Some young members of the left opposition, and left opposition was very large, uh, particularly among the youth. And these young uh, members they said, look, uh, the failure of the Chinese revolution, uh, it proves that we were right all along, uh, that all our methods are correct one and so on. And Trotsky said, no. This will not. Uh, this is not a good thing at all. Uh, it's uh, the demoralization that's caused by this Chinese, the failure of the Chinese revolution is ten times stronger than any. Uh, you know, even if we're proven right, a uh, hundred times over, it will matter nothing because the demoralization that's set in by this is far more important. So I think, yeah, your this is this is the kind of situation, and this was then what Stalin could base himself on, and the bureaucracy, state bureaucracy, could base themselves on. Um, they didn't, the workers didn't go away quite uh, silently, but they actually, in in the uh, final years of the NEP, there were there was a struggle going on, and the workers were really pushing mm. pushing back against these pro-capitalist policies, and they could see the dangers of what was taking place, and you find there. The slogans of the left, left opposition becoming prominent in many of the demonstrations and so on that were organized at the same time as the left opposition was persecuted. And this really, uh, but that probably even didn't endear, themselves, endear the, 
left opposition to the bureaucracy who probably saw them even more as a threat as a result. So in terms of this battle between Stalin and Trotsky, which Stalin ultimately won, I suppose some would argue, well, if Trotsky was so great and Stalin was so bad, why is it that Trotsky was defeated? I mean, Trotsky had this amazing grasp of theory. And not only that, but he was incredibly prominent because, of course, he'd been the leader of the Red Army. He led the working class to victory against the White Counter Revolution. You could argue he was in a very strong position. And some people have said, well, why is it that Trotsky didn't just use his position at the head of the Red Army? Uh, with the prestige that he had and with the support that he had amongst some of the better layers of the working class to overthrow the Stalinists and impose control and to rescue the revolution from the um, the state apparatus that was becoming, as Lenin described, like a car without a driver. So why is it that in spite of all this, um, in spite of all these advantages on the surface, Trotsky was defeated? Well, Trotsky based himself on the working class and the and that was the struggle of the working class, which he saw internationally. That was the only way of rescuing the Russian Revolution. He did say that he, uh, in the early in the early 1920s, probably not by the late 1920s, but certainly in the early period, he would have. He said that he would have been able to use the Red Army, mm. but he said that you know uh, he would have introduced instead of a civilian bureaucratic dictatorship, he would have had a military bureaucratic dictatorship. Would have been far far worse. Uh, so yes, sure, he he could have taken power, but he would have just transformed, uh, create an even worse regime than that one, which or as bad as uh, than that one, which Stalin wound up becoming the head of. So he did. So instead, he obviously were basing himself on the real revolutionary traditions of the uh, international working class. But when those revolutions failed, um, that's when obviously, which then weakened. Trotsky's position. And can I pick your brains about some of the... I'm using air quotes that you can't see over the the podcast. Uh, some of the theories of Stalinism and how they came... They, they were in contradiction to the ideas that Trotsky put forward. I think that the main points of difference are the um, two-stage theory versus um, the permanent revolution and the socialism in one country versus the international revolution or the emphasis on internationalism um which both of which are linked to the conflict between the united front and the popular front Mm. so can we just deal quickly with some of these ideas because i think that it's fair to say that a lot of these so-called innovations of stalinism were actually backdated um menshevik ideas they were reformist ideas that were adopted after the fact, in order to justify some of these empirical swings that you've described over the course of the discussion, in order to shore up the bureaucracy's position. So let's deal with the question of um, of the two-stage theory versus permanent revolution first. Well, this was obviously before the Russian Revolution and the workers took power in Russia. It wasn't entirely clear exactly how... Uh, how a revolution in a backward country like Russia. It was clear among Marxists, it was clear revolutionaries. It was very clear that in in France, in Britain, in Germany and so on, what was on the agenda was the socialist revolution. But obviously in in a country like Russia, you had these elements of feudalism uh, combined then with, you know, in the cities, uh, a development of very uh, advanced capitalism. 
So you had very backward areas, large peasantry, and then a small working class, but with very, very large industries. And the question was then how, what would be the nature of this, uh, what would be the nature of um, uh, this revolution? And both Lenin and Trotsky, slightly different roads, they came to this conclusion, but both of them came basically to the same conclusion, which was that the workers would need to take power. Then it wasn't entirely clear until I'd say 1917, uh, in, uh, exactly what that would entail. Uh, Trotsky was quite clear that the workers needed to take power in uh, supported by the peasantry, and that this would need to be uh, take place and uh, ha- transform the revolution, the, the, the democratic revolution, the, uh, to form democratic revolution against Tsarism and so on, transform that into. Uh, a socialist revolution. Uh, Trotsky was quite clear about that. And then with the help of the West, uh, workers in the West, they could then overcome the backwardness of Russia. Um, The revolution and the workers in the West. Lenin came to it in a slightly different way, but nonetheless arrived to it the same conclusion. He talked about the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry. Mm. But the content of that wasn't entirely clear. Was this going to be a democratic dictatorship ruled o- ruling over a capitalist state, a uh, capitalist economy? Mm. Uh, and, uh, or what, what exactly would be the nature of that? And in practice, during the uh, Russian Revolution, this was proven, and then you can see what, uh, obviously, what Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks did was to abolish capitalism. So, yes. in practice, was proven that Trotsky's idea was correct, which also Lenin uh, said later on. Uh, uh, he he credited Trotsky with having been right on that question. Mm. There were other things where Trotsky was wrong on, but on that question, he was right. Um, and obviously, the other conception that existed in the Russian Revolution at that time was that we were going to base ourselves on uh, an alliance with the liberals, mm. and this Lenin was adamantly opposed to uh, any kind of alliance with liberals to have a democratic revolution and then have democracy, i.e. capitalism, uh, for a number of years, and then in some point in the future we would be ready to have develop industries and so on, then get ready to mm. uh, uh, to have a socialist revolution. But this this was this was position of the Menshevik. But but obviously, if you read Lenin's imperialism, he actually criticizes mm. these very ideas uh, in that uh, that book. This general idea that you can have like a natural development of. Uh, uh, capitalism, but he says imperialism puts a block to that, mm. yeah, and that's also uh, was also Trotsky's position. It was not possible for, and we talk about the permanent revolution. It wasn't possible for um, countries to arrive to the, you know, the who arrived late to the scene of history. The, these uh, like uh, Russia to develop in the same way as had happened in in the West, mm. and therefore what what you needed was then the uh, the workers to take power and basically modernize the country with the help of uh, uh, the uh, workers in the West, the workers of Russia uh, supported by a rev- socialist revolution in the West. And then you could have like proceed uh, to build a socialist society on that basis. But that that is that was the Mensheviks were opposed to that. And mm. you can find them basically what Stalinism is, is revives these ideas. Yes. It's effectively reformist ideas, basically where you can kind of accommodate yourself or have... Uh, uh, to the liberals, you make an alliance, a popular front, you might call it, with yes. the liberals, the progressive bourgeoisie, as they also wound up calling it, and then use, uh, using that to fight against something. But that, that doesn't work because actually the progressive, so-called progressive bourgeoisie, the uh, the liberals, they in every single revolution, 
that took place, they find themselves on the, uh, eventually at the, in the camp of reaction because they fear the workers more than they fear the Tsar or uh, the, uh, the old uh, uh, feudal order or the imperialism. Or so, the Falange in Spain. Yeah. So this has always uh, this has happened time and time again. And uh, this was a disastrous policy and also the one that was more or less followed in China with uh, uh, Kuomintang. Yes. I always think it's interesting. I mean, the permanent revolution is probably one of the most abused and deliberately misunderstood theories in history. It, some people say that it means that revolution has to happen everywhere, all at once, all over the world, uh, which I think can only be based on looking at the title and never actually reading a word of what Trotsky actually wrote about it. Or they say that it, based, it, it, it has a condescending view towards the working class um, in the underdeveloped nations, whereas in actual fact, what it says is that not only is it possible, but it's actually necessary for the working class um, in the underdeveloped nations, having um, been leaned on by their own weak and parasitic bourgeois in order to accomplish the democratic tasks of the revolution, if you like, to then move straight towards the development of socialism. And if that doesn't happen, then they'll be put back in their place and crushed by the by, by the bourgeois, because, as you say, they fear the working class far more than they fear whatever they were fighting against previously. Yeah. I think this was also proven throughout the 20th century, right. whenever there is a revolution, like Cuba, for example, mm. well, they tr- tried to have a democratic revolution. Uh, Castro talked about re- creating a another United States in uh, Cuba and so on like we're gonna you know have democracy just like in the US but then this doesn't work at all mm. under uh, conditions of imperialism and actually they wound up having to nationalize the banks and take over the commanding heights of economy in order to be able to stop uh, imperialism from wrecking the um, the the even the democratic gains uh, that they had made. I think that's shown time and time throughout Africa where capitalism was abolished in country after country uh, and so on. This is uh, this was <laughs> ironic in a weird way in, in a sort of the whole of the 20th century is a massive confirmation of Lenin's and Trotsky's ideas on this question mm. and a massive disproving of uh, the Menshevik position, which also while being taken up by the Stalinist. Mm. Um, what about socialism in one country? Well, that, that's kind of, uh, so that's sort of related to the same thing again. is the idea, I mean, the bureaucracy of the Soviet Union was not interested in permanent revolution, was not interested in upheaval, was not interested in spreading the revolution to other countries. They wanted calm, they wanted peace, and they feared the workers as well, because mm. obviously the, these bureaucrats wound up being very, very privileged, particularly towards the end, but even in the late 1920s, they were substantially better living conditions than... Uh, workers and how acquired all kinds of privileges originally it was concessions that were justifiably made in order to try to maintain some skilled workers in the state apparatus but in these conditions these uh, exceptions uh, and concessions became worse and worse and worse and these they bureauc- it was a real uh, bureaucracy developed and they had their own interests and they need to defend these uh, these um, privileges from the working class and obviously revolution was not on the agenda and instead they then developed this idea of socialism in one country which was um, uh, a very reactionary uh, idea and a counter-revolutionary idea basically the idea effectively wound up this is not the way they express it but they wound up being 
well, uh, whatever revolutions that happen abroad, we can sacrifice an interest of uh, of uh, defending uh, really existing socialism, as they called it in mm. in the Soviet Union. So they sacrificed, they very deliberately sacrificed the Spanish Revolution yes. in the hope of an alliance with the West against Hitler, yes. which did not take place. It did not happen. <laughs> in mm. fact, if they had been successful and had a successful revolution in Spain in the 1930s, they, uh, that would have been a massive blow against fascism uh, and that would be much better than any kind of, uh, uh, you know promises or uh, of alliance with uh, the imperialists mm. so yeah this is the kind of socialism in one country but it reflected this very conservative outlook of the bureaucracy and which uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with the history of marxism which always conceived i mean even marx if you read his writings it all talks about socialism as being international or it's or all the old uh, crap will come back, is, mm. I think is the word he used. Yes, that's right. And I think that Spain's a really important turning point because you've explained up till now how the bureaucracy in Russia was, up until the 30s, kind of reacting empirically to events. It would move to the right, then it would move to the left, it blurred its fingers on, on one thing and then it would move to another. Um, it was basically, while it was in a weak position, while it was finding its feet, it was just lashing out in order to protect itself and to defend its position. But by the Seventh Congress of the Comintern, where the Popular Front is adopted as policy, where following the experience of Spain, the Stalinists essentially instruct their members to get in the, into bed with the bourgeois republicans and establish that as their world policy that's the point where the bureaucracy becomes consciously counter-revolution and as policy it opposes world revolution because it was afraid of a uh, working class revolution breaking out over which it didn't have control because it saw that as a threat to its position in russia not only um because it was out of its control but because that might have inspired the russian working class um, to launch a political revolution against the bureaucrats who expropriated political power in Russia. And that explains its behavior all throughout the 20th century. I mean, you mentioned a few examples in Africa, uh, for example, in the, in the colonial world, but also, also China in the also, 1930s. Also China in the 30s, and, and also um, in some instances in the West. I mean, you can look at the way that the Communist Party undermined the May 68 revolution in France. You can look at the Spanish transition in the 1970s. Time and again, the Stalinists serve as a deliberate break, a deliberate break through their local communist parties on these revolutions for fear of them becoming a threat to their to their position yeah also i would say it's also it's also this lack i mean some of these communist parties they don't do it because they have a particular interest in the soviet bureaucracy although there was that as well the soviet bureaucracy did keep a co some of these parties on the very tight leash mm. but um also the fact that you have no trust in the masses and there mm. was deliberately propagated uh, this idea of lack of trust in the masses which is something we find in uh, not just in Stalinism, but also in the reformist organizations, in the trade unions and so on. The lack of trust in the members, in the working class, it's a constant feature of um, uh, of the labor movement, mm. ironically. But I think one thing we really should emphasize is something that we talked about um, about halfway through, which is the clear distinction between genuine Marxism and genuine Leninism and Stalinism. Trotsky describes a river of blood as separating 
Stalinism from genuine Bolshevism. And the best way of demonstrating that is that all the surviving leading layers of the Bolshevik party from 1917, those who weren't lucky enough to die of natural causes, were either killed in Stalin's purges in the 30s, in the Moscow trial frame-ups, or um, they were essentially sent into exile. I think of the original 1917 committee, the only surviving members by the end of the 1930s, apart from Stalin, were Muranov, who was basically put into exile in 39, Kollontai, also more or less sent into exile after she capitulated, and um, a guy called Stasova, who I actually never heard of before we were preparing for this discussion, uh, who Stalin saw as harmless. But everybody else, all the other leading elements from the revolution, from the civil war, First and foremost amongst them, Trotsky, of course, were were exiled and purged, mm. Stalin, including most almost all the officers of the Red Army. Right, including Tchaikovsky, who was the military genius who um, was instrumental in developing um, the deep warfare tactic that Hitler later rebranded as um, Blitzkrieg and used to great effect for the fascists, of course, but uh, worked. Worked very well at the hands of the working class as well in the red in the in the red army in the civil and, war and all most of the people have been involved in the Spanish civil war as well even if they had been carrying out the will of the Stalin and the bureaucracy they were still seen as suspicious because they might might have been tainted by the workers revolution and the revolutionary ideas of Spain at the time they were also purged I've always thought that if the the fig leaf excuse that the Stalinists at the time, and to this day, use that these people were all counter-revolutionaries in touch with this or that reactionary government. Lenin must have been an appalling judge of character, because we're talking about the leading light to the Bolshevik party. Well, there's two things I wanted to, to end on. First of all, you, you, you've spoken about how the policies that the Stalinists were forced to adopt in their ultra-left turn, in a really distorted way, um, demonstrated the correctness of the criticisms that the left opposition were raising. But also, I would say more importantly, with the collapse of the USSR and the restoration of capitalism, Trotsky's prognosis um, in Revolution Betrayed and elsewhere that there would either be a political revolution in Russia against the usurping bureaucracy or a return to capitalism, with some delay, admittedly, um, because of the peculiarities of the Second World War and its aftermath, the leading role that the Red Army played in repelling fascism, which strengthened the... Um, authority of the Soviet regime for a long time. But nevertheless, with a delay, the bureaucracy became an absolute break on the development of the planned economy and eventually laid the path for the restoration of capitalism. And of course, the same Stalinist bureaucrats who had been the leaders of the Communist Party uh, became the first looters, they became the first oligarchs, the first to benefit and personally profit from the tearing up and selling off of the planned economy in the 1990s. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing is what happens is that if in the 1920s they they veered, uh, under pressure from the workers, they veered uh, to the left uh, in order to defend the planned economy. In the 1980s, uh, that did not take place. And at this stage, the brokers had lost all faith in themselves. And you can see it. They were enamored with the West and their, the children were going to the, the West and were uh, obsessed with the luxuries and the wealth of the millionaires in the West. 
Uh, and all of this uh, becomes particularly clear or particularly prevalent in the 1980s. The economy is not working and really the, the bureaucracy has just lost all faith in the planned economy and in themselves. And so this is when they start basically then opening up and obviously they make sure that they themselves to protect their own privileges, although not all of them are successful in doing so. Um, there was a, quite a few upstarts as well who managed to acquire a lot of the money uh, and the wealth that were, were the Russian workers had painstakingly built up on the previous uh, decades, um, uh, which was privatized for, uh, for, for nothing. But yeah, they restored capitalism just like Trotsky had predicted uh, would take place if there wasn't a workers' a revolution, if the workers weren't put back in charge of um, the uh, of the planned economy, basically. Mm. Yeah, the irony that they were accusing Trotsky in the 30s of conspiring to destroy the USSR while he was championing its unconditional defence, they were the ones who ended up destroying the USSR. Um, by their actions, and then n- numerous times, even in the even the nineteen thirties. I mean, as I say, they purged the Red Army on the eve of Hitler's invasion. Like, okay, it was a couple of years beforehand, but you purged the entire officer corps of the Red Army just before Hitler invaded. It created a huge mess, and it took them a long time to recover uh, in the war conditions. They all Hitler almost succeeded, mm. and the the, uh, the planned economy they managed through the planned economy to survive. But they, they, there was another one of his crucial points when the whole thing could have gone. Uh, the capitalism could have been restored in an extremely brutal way, mm. um, uh, even far far earlier. Yeah, and of course the Stalinists um, formed the non-aggression pact with Hitler, which Trotsky saw as a bit of a Rubicon in terms of uh, whether the common term was um, salvageable or not. And that also, that Stalin, there are stories, I mean, how much of it is true or not, it's a bit hard to tell, but the stories about Stalin actually believed in this pact. He signed a piece of paper, Hitler signed a piece of paper, and Stalin actually believed that Hitler would stick to his word. But it turns out, obviously, that Hitler did not do so. And this was a great shock to Stalin and the bureaucracy, who had made some really bad concessions, uh, including blowing up fortifications and, and the like uh, in the west of the country in order to um, uh, you know, get this pact with Hitler. Mm. Got some real brass neck, sowing slanderous fairy stories about Trotsky forming alliances with fascists, whereas they were openly signing... Uh, non-aggression pacts with Nazi Germany. Anyway, the second and final thing I wanted to um, talk about before we wrap this up is the legacy of Stalin and Stalinism today, because I think there's a layer of young people who see Stalin in a bit more of a positive light than certainly their parents and grandparents and I feel like there's a bit of a. I think there's two sides to this. Obviously, I think there's a. I think there's a progressive side to this because I think that these are people. These are young people who are. We know poll after poll demonstrates are more sympathetic towards socialism, towards communism, who see themselves as communists. And obviously, the Russian Revolution is a beacon of inspiration for these progressive young people. And in the isolate, in the absence of. Um, you know, having read Trotsky's ideas and criticisms, having studied the history, um, Stalin was 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 the figurehead of the USSR, 
And I think there's also a kind of healthy contrarianism as well, a sort of, oh, my parents say that Stalin's bad, but I'm a communist and capitalism is bad. And therefore, I think that uh, Stalin's not all that bad. Um, and there are others who argue, and the Morning Star, the, the organ of the uh, Communist Party in Britain, have argued that there's no point sustaining these debates about whether Trotsky was right or Stalin was right. At the end of the day, these are long-finished arguments between long-dead men, and we should just get on with organising in our trade unions and on our picket lines and, and so on, and put this whole thing to bed. But why is it, is it still important? Why is it still important that we um, talk about Stalin, his legacy, and defend the ideas of Trotsky and the criticisms that Trotsky raised against the Stalinists? Well, I think Stalin might have characterized it as a storm in his teacup. <laughs> um, if you think of the Communist Party of Britain and there, uh, they're obviously trying to avoid the question. That's all there is to it. They don't want to discuss yeah. it because they're deeply divided on the question. Um, and therefore, they, they can't really come up with an answer. And therefore, instead of having an argument and discussing it and clarifying their ideas, they try to avoid it. Um, and I think uh, this is, I think for young people, they are looking for an alternative to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And obviously, in history, the main alternative to capitalism was the Soviet Union and the Russian Revolution, where the workers actually succeeded in taking power. And they see, obviously, Lenin is a great inspiration to all. And then people, and, uh, but then there are also those who then see, well, Stalin as his natural successor, which I think for all <laughs> we have demonstrated that this is not the case. But I think people see that and also see this thing of this like determination, this uh, like a kind of uh, merciless determination to uh, uh, achieve uh, uh, the revolutionary goals. And then if you comp that's like how Stalin is seen in some way, in some layers. And then you see, uh, on the other hand, like the weak and vacillating reformists. Mm. And, and you go like, well, look, I'm stand for this strong, determined stance and so on. But it's all... Uh, so you have the Russian Revolution, the, uh, the inspiration of that, and then seeing quite wrongly, but nonetheless, uh, the link between Stalin and the Russian Revolution. And then you see his determined character and like his sort of... Stalinists give his impression of being very hard. But it's all very shallow because actually if you look at the actual politics, it's not uncompromising, it's not principled, it's not uh, determined, it's actually quite weak and vacillating most of the time. You find, you know, the, the, so on the one hand you have the Young Communist League in Britain, they go out and they have like, they get, wear masks and they talk about Stalin and talk about communism and they do like, uh, you know, this um, flares and things like that on demonstrations, looks very radical. But then when it comes to the actual politics, they, they all they seem to be able to come, uh, come up with as a kind of revolutionary strategy is to build food banks. Mm. And this is also mirrored by the Communist Party in the United States. So they, they abandoned the idea of building the party. They abandoned the idea of uh, you know, organizing workers uh, uh, of, uh, in a revolutionary party for the overthrow of capitalism. So they got a lot of radical phraseology, but in actual practice, there's not much... Uh, it's not very radical at all, and it's actually very, very uh, meek and mild. Mm. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think that the point that I'd like to end on is if you consider yourself a communist and you consider yourself a Marxist, then the genuine traditions of Marx, Engels and Lenin are embodied in the ideas and struggle of Leon Trotsky, who provided uh, an amazing analysis of 
Stalin of the generation of the Russian Revolution and who kept the banner of Marxism clean for future generations. And it's on those ideas that the international Marxist tendency bases itself. One more time, I'd like to plug the Stalin biography available from Well-Read Books. It's excellent. And if you haven't read it already, I also heartily recommend Revolution Betrayed, another of Trotsky's masterpieces with details of the generation of the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Stalinist bureaucracy. Nicholas, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joe. That was International Marxist Radio. Thanks for joining us. Tune in again same time next week for more Marxist news, theory, and analysis. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, get in touch via our website, marxist.com, and find out more about how you can join the international Marxist tendency and fight for revolution where you are.